I'm just going with the flow. So you're listening to Three Wise Truck Guys from Key Advisors. Hey, welcome everyone to Three Wise Truck Guys podcast, episode one. I'm Keith Ely. Hi, I'm Mark Martensik. This is John Whitnell. I was talking to uh, my wife last night about doing this for the first time. And I, I think between the three of us, we probably have 120 to 125 years worth of experience. And I hope there's some expertise in that on this podcast between the three of us. Um, you know, we're, the, the thought behind this was to start to get some, some lessons learned and some wisdom uh, from, from what we've done in the past and uh, also where we see this industry going. Yeah, you know, Keith, uh, this is really interesting times in the uh, in the truck business, right? Uh, as we sit here, we're on the cusp of uh, new truck orders, uh, which have which have really been plentiful the last two two and a half three years, and and all of a sudden that's that's not the case. Okay, so we're looking at uh, 2020, where new truck volumes will be dramatically less than they are, and they've been the last few years. Uh, we're also sitting on the cusp of uh, some really challenging times in the used truck business. Uh, our sense is the balance of 2019 is going to continue to get uh, even more challenging before things start to to uh, turn around in, in 2020. So on the new truck side of the business, this is uh, this is really a very challenging time uh, to be in the commercial vehicle distribution business. I think over the last uh, five years, actually, Fixed operations have changed drastically, almost to the point of a paradigm shift. For as long as I've been around, uh, service departments, parts departments pretty much ran the same. We we moved from uh, carbon forms and paper to computers, and the computers got more sophisticated. Certainly the product got more sophisticated, and the uh, technical aspect training became more important. But today, customers are really, really focused and demanding less downtime and uh, efficient repairs and and fixed right the first time. And uh, in my lifetime, this is really, truly a paradigm shift. And I think if you're not up with the times, if you're not communicating well, if you're not focusing on the customer metrics, uh, I think you might be left in the dust. And it just seems to increase that pressure, making it harder and harder to make a profit uh, year after year. And I think 2020 will be no different. You know, I, I had a chance yesterday to visit with a, a CEO of a group. And one of the questions he asked me was, uh, what was our take on this whole throughput model that the manufacturers have been pushing? And, and we started talking about the whole staffing relationship. I, I know, Mark, that that when, when you and I started doing this together 15, 20 years ago, if we had talked about a benchmark for um, staff technician ratio, that probably would have been three and a half to one. We would have thought about what it was a good number. And that number is going, it's getting smaller. You know, you're getting, getting more staff per, per technician, you know, three used to be three and a half techs to a staff member. And then now it's probably maybe down to two, two techs per staff member and uh yeah yeah i i i, I try and measure it but it really is it, and it's certainly one of the more uh common questions from dealers okay is what should that staffing ratio be and uh typically what i tell them it's it's a lot less uh technicians per support personnel today than it has been because the oems over the years have pushed more and more of the administration out 
to the dealerships. And uh, the closest number I can come to is maybe 2.2, 2.3. But to your point, somewhere closer to 2 to 1. Uh, and that increased costs. So if we increase cost, obviously, we have to increase gross profit to overcome that. And uh, if we focus on the customer's metrics, which is typically downtime, everyone thinks it's price, and certainly price is one of them, but it's not the number one, uh, then we need staff to do that. So that number is growing, and we've got to produce more gross to cover that expense, obviously. We also have this electric an autonomous vehicle and who knows what else coming down the pike at us. And I think that's, there's going to be some interesting uh, discussions on that. And I'm sure we can find some people smarter than us to come on and visit with us about, about that. Give, give the audience some insight into that. We do call ourselves the three wise truck guys. And uh, I think, as I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure we got at least 125 years, probably more than that among the three of us. John, you'll give us a little background on on yourself. We, we better get some uh, bona fides out here so people know who we are and what we do. Sounds, sounds good. Keith, of those 125 years, I think I can probably speak to 40 of them. Uh, I've been in this business just, just a little over 40 years and uh, spent, uh, spent some time practicing as a CPA before I came into the truck business, but spent 27 years of my career with, uh, with one of the OEMs, the... Uh, the preponderance of that was in product development, but but really my, my DNA in this business is is on the is on the variable operations side. A lot of experience on a new truck, a lot of experience on leasing, and a lot of experience as it relates to the, the used truck side of our business. After those twenty seven years, I started up my my own company and uh, and did Whitnell Analytics, where we focus on developing some new measurement tools and metrics for the used truck business, and now been part of Key Advisors for the last year. Mark, how about you? I know you're you're going to be the preponderance of this 125 plus years. Well, I've got well over 50 years now uh, in the industry, and uh, I guess if I go back and and tell the whole story, my dad. I'm the oldest of 10 kids. My dad was a bricklayer, and somewhere around 12 years old, I was talking to my dad about how I would build a fireplace, and uh, he explained to me that he did not want me to be a bricklayer because back then the cement froze; you could only work nine months out of the year, he thought I should take a different direction. And I had an uncle who was a truck manager for a small, or a truck mechanic for a small fleet. So somewhere around 12 years old, I decided I was going to be a truck mechanic. And I pursued that. The day after I graduated high school, I started as an apprentice mechanic. We were mechanics, not technicians then. And uh, worked my way up from apprentice to journeyman. Did a stint in the Air Force, came back. Uh, because I became a good mechanic, they made me a foreman with no training, by the way. And because I eventually became a good foreman, they made me a service manager. And again, no training. Uh, I spent a total of 22 or 23 years in uh, the dealership. And in 1990, January of 1990, I had the opportunity to start consulting. And... Uh, other than going back to school uh, uh, nights and weekends for over 10 years, and my real education, I feel, is the last 30-plus years of uh, working with about 30 dealerships a year, all in fixed operations. So, John, uh, God bless you for dealing with all that variable stuff, but I'm a fixed ops guy, okay? Uh, and uh, you can imagine working with uh, 
roughly 30 dealers a year on average for over 30 years, uh, the education I got, okay? I did go back to school, uh, I don't know, Keith, was it eight or 10 years ago uh, at uh, for a uh, certificate program at Purdue, and uh, I'm a late Six Sigma black belt. But again, I really think uh, my pedigree comes from uh, the last 30 years. As good as I thought I was, and I was pretty cocky as a young guy, uh, when I left the dealership, my real education came from visiting a lot of dealerships and working with a lot of dealerships on change management and improvement. So uh, that's kind of my background, how I got to where I was. Uh, Keith and I have been together, I don't know, for 15, 18, 20 years. And uh, here we are. Yeah, so I, I just did some quick math, and we are <clears throat> we are right at 125 years. I, I'm usually not the youngster of the bunch, but I guess I am among the three of us. I... I uh, I've spent, quote, 35 years in this business, um, grew up in it, so it's probably more than that. Started sweeping floors and picking up trash and around the dealership when I was six or seven years old. Got fired multiple times by my dad, who was a dealer. And uh, But uh, <clears throat> spent time in every department. And I, I think one of the things, Mark, you talked about your real, real education coming through the dealership. I, I would never pretend that, that I'm nearly as good as any of the people that we get the chance to work with, but, uh, but just the opportunity to observe and, and see what happens in the, in the business is, is, has offered a lot of education. Um, I got the chance to, to paint. I got the chance to turn a wrench. I got the chance to sell some parts and work in inventory and sell a few trucks and, and do a little accounting. My, my background is, somewhat like John's never worked for the CPA firm and as a, as a certified accountant, but, uh, I ended up somehow, um, not really by, by choice, but, but, uh, and I guess it was by choice in some ways on the accounting side and ended up, uh, in 1995 starting a consulting practice. And one of the first things we were able to do was teach the, the, uh, ATD Academy course starting in 1996, November of 96. And John happened to be in the first class I taught. And I think that was probably, yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's, it's uh, where the, we all go back a long ways and it's small, it's small industry. I think we're counting up. I think we've taught out of the 41 classes, 36, 37 of those classes, which is a really remarkable and, and interesting number. Um, I think that's, I think that, to me, what what I what I look at over the years is Mark. You talked about the change in in what's happened in service, uh, and John. The you know the we've seen these things happen in, in used trucks and even in new trucks of the manufacturers continuing to get more engaged with. That's probably a nice word, but more engaged and involved in in the sell of a truck. Uh, just the whole. You know, I like to tell a story to the parts class about when I first started of, of uh, we, we managed inventory by a tubs method, which was cards. And, and uh, 1977, I think they moved to, to installing ADP at the time. And that was pretty high, high and high fancy uh, computer system to manage the inventory. You, uh, you kept track of what you sold on a pad and you, you sent that pad every two weeks or so into ADP and they processed a stock order for you. 
and that was computerization. And boy, have we come a long ways. There's, you know, with the size of the businesses that, that we see now, there's no way that these businesses could operate if they weren't, uh, if the technology background wasn't there to, to support them. So interesting times. And I, I think one of the things that, that the three of us have done really a good job of is, is not getting behind the times. I think we're still pretty, pretty strong at looking forward as to what's coming, uh, what's coming down the road. Hey, Mark, one you know question for you: uh, If you had to think about the dealer op, the dealership operations, and just your one core principle, your driving core principle behind uh, dealer ops, what what would you say that is? Well, I, I really think uh, what it's become. I think it's been different over the years. Okay, but what it's become is uh, all about leadership and engagement and the right culture in the dealership. And I guess this really spans all departments, not service, even though I focus on service or body shop. Uh, but the, the, uh, if you look at, uh, the industry today, it's hard to find technicians. The trucks are more and more technical. The, uh, uh, people don't stay on their job. Uh, the baby boomer boomers have, uh, moved into management roles or retired for the most part. We're dealing with Generation X and, and Millennials, which uh, uh, might be better than baby boomers, but uh, certainly different in what they want and seek out of a job. And the culture in the dealership has maybe fallen behind in many places I visit. And certainly the uh, lack of engagement with those people, which is what they want and what they need and what makes them more productive and efficiency is lacking. So. Although I talk about the block of ice and the six-minute rule and all these other things specific to to uh, fixed operations, uh, the one core belief is that we need more uh, more in the in the numbers and and better leadership at most of our dealers. And that sounds harsh. Uh, I think I think most dealers have good managers. They don't necessarily have good leaders in all cases at all levels of management. John, I'm going to pitch that same question to you. Well, uh, you know, Mark said a mouthful there, right? Leadership is such a, such a huge uh, aspect of, uh, of running a successful enterprise, but I'm going to go just a, a little bit different direction. And the word I'm going to focus on as it relates to leadership operations is accountability. Um, as we get together and talk about commonality between the engagements that run, I, th- I think one of the common aspects of most dealerships is, is, is not putting the infrastructure in place to hold your people accountable. The, the performance management process at most dealerships uh, that I'm engaged with and that uh, I get in and out of is, is uh, it reflects their heritage as relatively small businesses. But as they, these businesses have grown, that, that performance management culture and the processes that underlie performance, effective performance management really aren't in place. And that's, uh, you know, that, that involves goal setting, that involves uh, communication, that involves uh, performance reviews, and, um, and it involves the whole spectrum of performance management. So one of the areas that I'm really, really passionate about is holding people accountable and making sure that you've got the, the basic management uh, pieces in place in order to be able to hold your, effectively hold your people accountable. You know, I, I, uh, I appreciate those answers. I, <clears throat> I kind of, as, as I was thinking about this question, um, 
that leadership piece is so big and, and the performance management piece goes right along with it. And I, I guess I would tie into it the balance sheet. Um, and it sounds very, very basic, but one of the biggest issues I see as we, as we advise our customers and are working with them, whether it's a, in a classroom setting or a deep dive one-on-one engagement is just a lack of, the lack of focus on, on managing a balance sheet and uh, whether it's a whip reconciliation, keeping that time right, or whether it's a used truck valuation, there's so much hidden junk a lot of times on that, on that balance sheet. And it really, uh, while the, while the feeling is that the income statement is, is true and and certainly that what they report on the income statement is, is, is factual in terms of, of, labor dollars or truck dollars that they're selling there's so much stuff behind it that that just lands um inherent costs inherent expenses into the equation they start to clean it up on these 13th month adjustments and and uh where they don't even clean it up and and now balance sheet really doesn't represent what they what the business truly is and and uh i i I go back you know both to, to to both of your guys points the leadership aspect um, I, I think it's it's that that heritage that that beginnings of of we're small 20 person business and me as the dealer can run this and i don't need a leader in my service department or my my new truck department or whatever it is i just need a doer but now i've got 15 locations and that culture still kind of uh, is is the underpinning of how we do business and kind of becomes really hard for me to, to, to lead that organization. And, and because of that, my performance management really suffers. There's no, there's no real, real expectations. Uh, you know, the observation is, well, that dealership is in a different market. They sell a different product. They do, it's a different, whatever reality is there's probably some, some right ways to do this. And, and, uh, and some right performance management numbers that you start to, to manage it to. So, that balance sheet to me is just, uh, you can always tell a lot from, about a, a business's operations looking at the balance sheet and uh, the cleanliness of it and and, and uh, what they do to keep that clean. So, Well, to that point, to that point, that kind of recaps both what John and I said, okay, to, to have a better balance sheet, you need all the things, including the structure to make it easier for people to be efficient and the accountability John talked to, uh, the performance management piece. And and today, to get people to change and focus more and change that culture, it takes a lot of engagement. So I think it all comes full circle. Uh, you know, I do I do know that one of the focuses that we've had in this last or in in uh, September going into October is it's, you know, it's starting to get into the year prep time. Um, one of the things that, that just drives me kind of crazy is you see these 13th month adjustments of people taking parts inventory adjustments or use truck write downs or whatever it is. And they, they do it in a 13th month because they say, well, it's not, not part of our quote, normal operations. Uh, I don't know. That's just kind of a pet peeve of mine. You guys have any thoughts on that? Well, I think it should be done every month. Okay. I, I'm one, uh, to John's point, when it comes to performance management, uh, take your lumps where they where they happen. Okay. Uh, anytime we're looking at a income statement or, or financial statement or monthly reports, we're looking at history 
And so often in a service department or a body shop, uh, we look for excuses to keep repair orders open or we keep things on a warranty receivable list that we know we're not going to get paid for and, and so on and so forth. Take it when it happens, learn for, from it, and, and put action plans together to make it better. Uh, when it kind of all gets lumped at the end of the year, whether it's on the 12th or the 13th statement, uh, it affects paychecks, it affects uh, how everybody feels about the year and so forth. Uh, and and now you're dealing in generalities if you want to fix it for the upcoming year. So. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm with Mark uh, completely on this. We, we've we've talked about this actually, Keith. You and I at ATD, and one of the one of the points we made is, uh, you know, asset management isn't what you do when the truck becomes overaged, and and balance sheet discipline is a month to month thing that needs to be rigorously and religiously executed. So I, I am uh, I am not a fan either as a variable operations side. I'm not a fan of getting the can down the road until we get to the end of the year when we really can't do anything about it and, and use some 13th period adjustments. Uh, we've been working with our clients as it relates to the variable operations side of the business. Your, your best option is always to sell the truck and get rid of it. Don't, don't keep looking at it and then take a 13th period adjustment. This is bad news and bad news never gets better, okay? So our first piece of advice to all of our clients is always find a deal, sell the truck. And then uh, if you can't do that, then month-to-month write-downs are far far preferred from, from my perspective in terms of both matching the income performance to the actual month and avoiding these 13 period 13 adjustments and calamities is, is usually what they end up being. So not a fan of 13th period adjustments. Uh, yeah. You know, we were all three of us well versed in the financial statement and the the technical aspect of this thing, whether it's the the used truck management side of it or the uh, benchmarking or whatever you want to whatever you want to call these these performance metrics and and operational um, focus that we do. But we, I think, the three of us also know that the that if we don't have a strong leadership culture, accountability. You talked to it earlier, John, uh, about accountability and, and the ability to, to change, right? And, to, and to, to, to make things better, to look at, at what we're doing and say, how do we make this better? Uh, you know, that, that otherwise we're just going to stay stuck in the mud. You got any good leaders that you look to, John, or any, any good uh, change management, leadership principles, leadership gurus, you know that, that you start to model things after as you as you're doing your work. Well, uh, let, first off, let me make a subtle point. the The reality is, every dealership that we go into has has the policies in place to effectively manage their assets and avoid period thirteen adjustments. Keith, okay. So the real issue here is not about the policy; it's about the discipline to execute the policy consistently and live within the guidelines that you set. You're really opening up a Pandora's box when you start following some policies and not following others. Right? That certainly sends the wrong accountability message to your organization. So, right. um, so there isn't any guru and there isn't any dealership that we've been into that doesn't have the pieces in place to actually be good asset managers. It's just the having the the discipline and the rigor to consistently execute on that is where a lot of dealerships that we see tend to to uh, fall down. If you okay, Mark, how about you? Any any uh, any people that you look to, Mark, or any any uh, 
change management philosophies or things like that that you look to as you start to execute? I know that execution is key to 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 what you guys do. Yeah, there's uh, uh, there's I've had uh, plenty of mentors in my life. Okay, uh, when it comes to leadership and change, uh, uh, it's been an evolution for me. I used to be a top-down manager when I was uh, a new manager. You know, king of the hill type attitude, and and I pay you for eight hours and work for eight hours, damn it, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I learned the hard way, I guess. Okay, through the school of Knox, that uh, you can't save everybody, and you can't uh, uh, you can't force it down. It's much easier if you can make it their idea. Uh, you know, I I gain wisdom from. From the education I've had, I gained wisdom from different dealers and clients, uh, from the mentors that have been in my life, and from books. Okay, one of the first books I read that, that really started changing my my management career was a simple little forty five minute book called One Minute Manager by by uh, Ken Blanchard, and um, uh, it took me a while to get it. As simple as the book is, maybe that says something about my resistance to change, okay? But once I did it, I never felt like I fired anybody again. I never felt like I kept somebody too long or not long enough. It, it's just giving everybody the same chance to to improve, okay? Why did you hire him if you don't think he can make it at some point in time? Uh, so, you know, there's been a lot of books over the years. Uh, if it ain't broke, break it, and, and uh, good to great, and the four disciplines of execution and uh, all the lean studies I did and Six Sigma studies I did. And uh, probably my biggest mentor was Jim Dance, okay, uh, who we all know, I think, pretty well, uh, that focuses just on leadership and culture. So uh, certainly I have, I have clients that are already there. And they're a lot easier to work with because the, the structure's in place and the engagement's in place. And I have clients where it's not, and you've got to build that, and create it, and I'm sure you both run into the same thing. So, uh, but, it, but it's really, if I want people to change, I guess if I simplify it all, the easiest way to implement change is to make it their idea. Those are both great suggestions. One of the things I'd say, uh, you know, one of the timeless pieces of business literature that's uh, as Relevant today as it was in the uh, in the 80s when it was written is uh, Peters and Waterman wrote a book called In Search of Excellence and it talks a lot about discipline. Okay, so uh, if if I was going to encourage, especially our younger uh, readers, you know, uh, Tom Peters is a guy a lot of people quit listening to a while back, but that the book that he and, and Waterman wrote is is a timeless piece of business literature. The advice in there, actually what's interesting is some of the companies that they hold out as best in class in the 80s have, have gone by the wayside. But it's interesting to take those companies and apply the uh, the best practices that they articulate in search of excellence and see how these companies came off the rails. So if I was going to encourage uh, someone to go back and look at a, a business text uh, in search of excellence is, is really timeless. You're absolutely right. I, I, I love the, the, there were videos made. It was right at the beginning of the internet and things were changing and, and uh, we're focusing on the availability of knowledge. I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to be in Seattle and get to the fish market. And uh, it's the kids or the grandkids running it now. But uh, this guy saw me standing around just watching and came up to me, introduced himself. And he was a grandchild of, of whoever started it. 
and we just had a long philosophical conversation about their process and their their uh, it's one of the ones that survived I guess John okay because it's been a while since that's out okay and Keith and I had uh, had an interesting conversation at a restaurant in San Francisco you want to tell that Keith I'll let you tell it because it, I was just going to bring that up Mark and it was a fascinating is a fascinating um, just case study, right? In throughput. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were at ATD in, in San Francisco, I don't know, three or four or five years ago. And uh, uh, one of the fellows, one of our associates uh, had visited San Francisco often. He talked about this restaurant called Mom's, wasn't it, Keith? I think. It's, I think it's like Mama's or Mother's, yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. So we decided to go to go there for breakfast. And the line was down the street. We got there early before they opened, and the line was literally down the street. Now, you got a picture of this. It's in the old Italian neighborhood in, in San Francisco. It's uh, got maybe eight or ten tables inside. Okay. Uh, you order at the counter. You pay, and then they bring it to your table. Uh, it's so popular, okay, that there's a lineup literally a block down the street. Okay, I don't know how long we waited, but we finally got in and made our order, and the food is good. The food is good. I, I wouldn't say it was great, okay, but it's on the upper scale of good. The service was good once you got once you waited and got in, okay. Uh, the owner, which is actually Mom's son, I think he was, okay, uh, came over to check on us, and we started talking about the process that they have because they have a small building, and they wanted to maximize throughput or maximize the amount of business and give the customers the right experience that make you wait outside to get in versus trying to jam up the 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 whole place okay we ended up taking up that table for maybe an extra 45 minutes or an hour talking about their process and how it evolved and it's what you were saying john it's it's in search of excellence it's what keith was saying maximizing the the financial statement Okay, from the size of the building we have, how can we produce more without spending more? And uh, just a a very, very interesting morning. Spent a lot longer there than we planned on it. But the culture was all about throughput. I don't know that they, they can replicate that. They were talking about expanding and replicating. But it was, uh, it was really uh, removing waste from the process and improving performance and, and focusing on customers. Yeah, I needs. thought that was, so. I was thinking about that as you guys were talking was just, just that observation of, of watching this guy, knowing how many people to put into the queue to go into the line to order and, and stopping that line. I mean, he literally stopped the line from going in and the minute somebody came out, we, we opened the queue back up and uh, you know, we, the conversation I was having yesterday with the CEO one of the comments he made was, it's really hard to get a, a service manager understand, to understand that a backlog is not always a good thing uh, or that you want to maximize the capacity you have right now and, and push stuff through. The backlog's okay, but you got to be pushing stuff through that and, and not just to have a backlog. And they were really efficient about that. You know, I, I, I know we talked earlier about some of the things we might like to do on this podcast, and 
all the three of us, I, I know, like to, to read and explore and, and figure out ways that, that personally we can combat, can get better and our customers can get better. I'm looking at my, my uh, um, bookshelf right now. And so I see one minute manager on it. I see seven habits of highly effective people. John, you were talking about an oldie, but a goodie. I, I, and I don't remember the name of it. I don't even know if I have it on this bookshelf or if it's at home, but Peter Drucker, anything by Drucker is always a, it's a great read to me. Um, and, and I mean, it's, it's old, you know, some of it's 75 years old now, but uh, uh, it's all still relevant him. And uh, uh, gosh, I can't think of the gentleman's name now. That's the strategy professor at Michael Porter at, uh, at Harvard. And he's just, just good. Stuff. Hard to find a better strategy guy than him. Yep. Yep. And I think from a change management, we had a chance as a firm. I think, John, it might have been yours and Bennett's first day on the job last year with with KEA. But uh, we had a gentleman come in from a company called Echelon Front and talk to us about uh, the Battle of Ramadi and their four principles of, of leadership. And I, uh, I find that if I go back to those four principles, whenever I'm I'm struggling that those four principles sure clarify some things for me. So I, I look forward to talking to you guys more about books that you, we've read and, you know, doing a, a book review if we would and see if we can get John's seal of approval in a book and might go back to the, to the New York times bestseller number one, just because of John Whitnell saying, Hey, go read this book. So. I know I listen to John. Okay. Yeah, I do too. I do too. The pressure, you guys, the pressure is getting intense. <laughs> hey, uh, just before we go, um, you know, we've kind of set up, uh, uh, set up foundation here for what we're wanting to get done. Um, any other thoughts, John, just, uh, just observations of 40 years in the, commercial truck business that you've got for, for some folks? One of the things that I think incumbent on every dealership is change and how, how do we change? And, uh, and I know that, uh, you know, that's probably worthy of a separate podcast in and of itself. So I'm not going to speak at length, but uh, you know, there's this tension between accountability and holding people accountable. And the other word that I've come to appreciate over my 40 years business is patience. Yeah, to that to that point, okay, if you're trying to drive change, first of all, reduce it down to one or two things you're trying to, to drive at a time, and that's the patience part, right? You can't change everything at once. You know, focus on what's important, okay? Uh, make sure you, you have a way to measure things, okay? Once you've defined what you want to do, a way to measure, because I truly believe you can't change it if you can't measure it, okay, and analyze it. And, and that should be lead measures, not just lagging measures, but uh, looking at what happened yesterday or having a uh, scoreboard that shows me what's happening today or a Kanban that tells me when a piece of the process is, is out of sync and so forth, okay? Try and create a cadence of that daily, of that engagement and that focus from your team members. Try and make it their idea, okay? And... Uh, uh, make small improvements and they'll turn into big improvements and then go on to the next piece. If you practice that, you're going to find that there's a a, uh, a cascading effect. In other words, if I want to move X to Y by the end of the year, okay, although I'm focusing on, let's say, uh, parts fill rate, 
I, I may have to build the structure of, of uh, inventory integrity first and, and uh, lost sales first and so forth. So you need to drill down and start at the foundation. If you're building a house, you have to have a foundation before you can put up the walls and so forth. So uh, it, it's a, it starts small, focus on one or two things at a time and work through the process. I think that patience thing, John, is big. I think that, uh, you know, there's a there's a difference between being complacent and being patient. So uh, probably an opportunity to to elaborate. Mark just said a mouthful, right? The, this whole changes, uh, it, change management is an art. And uh, yeah. it's really kind of worthy of a, and all the things that he mentioned about in terms of constancy and purpose and measuring and, and holding people accountable, there's a, there's a lot there. Yeah. I just, you know, I guess to wrap that up, I, I, I think that one of the, I get feedback, I'm sure all of us do when we, when we're dealing with any of our customers or any, even internally with us is, are we, are we doing it just, are we changing this just because we want to change something or is there a real reason to change it? And, and uh, I think there's so many times of, of, of when I observe things out in the, in the dealership world. And again, even internally, I think sometimes there's, there's people just saying, let's change it just be just to change it. We don't, we don't know that there's any new better outcome for it. And so I think that, that idea of working backwards and yeah, maybe, maybe we don't need to change this. It works. Okay. Maybe we do need to change this because it, the, the outcome of this needs to be a lot different. So, but, but be careful because good is the enemy of great. Absolutely. You're okay. right. Yep. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a dichotomy is one of my favorite uh, podcast people and book writers says, right. It's, it's a dichotomy in terms of, Hey, we don't want to be, we don't want to be complacent about it and accept good. But at the same time, there may, there's maybe something more pressing that we need to deal with. And so uh, uh, sometimes we've got to be, we have to learn how to deal with what we have. I know, Mark, one of your favorite things that you talk about is is uh, is that sometimes a, a, a B player, a B service manager is just okay because he may be a C right now. He, he or she may be able to be molded into a B, and that may be just okay because not everybody you're going to get the superstar. That's right. That's right. Everybody won't be a superstar, but it's very, very rare. In 30 years of doing this, I can count on one hand. Uh, how many service managers could not make significant improvement? By far, they weren't all superstars, but but uh, if most of them came up the way I did, you know, because I was a good mechanic, eventually became service manager, right? And without a whole lot of training, if any, on the way up. So we're going to give our listeners the chance to send them some questions, and and uh, we'll address those on our podcast as we go forward. You're listening to Three Wise Truck Guys from Key Advisors. Our mission at Key Advisors is to help you, a commercial dealership, increase your profit by transforming your business to best of class. And we'd sure love the opportunity to work with you and your team. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast. John, any any uh, any services that you're finding that you and, and the used truck team is offering right now to your to your clientele that you think would uh, would be 
um, be recommended by you to, to our listeners? Keith, uh, one of the things I, I throw out for our uh, for our audience to contemplate, and Mark kind of made this point, you know, good is the enemy of great. If you've got if you got a, a management team in place that's uh, lukewarm and as the business gets more challenging and more difficult and they're not willing to uh, keep up, well, one of the things that we've uh, done successfully is we have a we have a hired gun program where we bring uh, uh, people in to kind of sit in the uh, manager's chair while you consider what alternatives might look like or going out and hiring a new manager that perhaps has uh, performance capability and performance potential more aligned with uh, long-term what you're looking for in the business. So, you know, don't, don't keep a guy sitting in a chair uh, longer than he is uh, capable of because we, we can bring people in on an interim basis and help affect the leadership change in your used truck department. Uh, by, by actually operating the department on an interim basis. Great. Thanks, John. Uh, Mark, any any uh, thoughts to the same question? In services and body shop, there's a lot of moving parts, okay, uh, and we do a little bit of everything. But what seems to be really hot right now is tying your process. If, if, if you've developed the process, if you want our help developing the process, tying the process to the technology you have, uh, tying the onboarding of technicians to a process, okay? So, you know, two of our partners, Hierology and Decisive, uh, create uh, technology or a process to help us with both of those. And we are, are are doing more and more business in tying the technology to the process and integrating it so that it supports the process and, and putting in a process with the help of Hierology and not just acquiring techs, but onboarding them and retaining them uh, so often we focus on just hiring and not re- retention of those people that we have. Great. Thanks so much. Just uh, one other uh, option I throw out, uh, you know, key advisors in the process of starting to formulate our uh, used truck market conditions forecast for 2020. So, you know, another opportunity for any of our clients that are interested in this is uh, is uh, our business intelligence services are are available to any of our clients. And if you're interested, if you have a desire to understand what's going on in the market and where you need to be positioning your used truck business for 2020, uh, we can certainly help with that. But it's intelligence services. Hey, you know, the, the thing I guess I'd bring up with everybody is, is uh, you know, first of all, our, our mission as a company is help our customers increase profit. And it's a, we always bold and italicize that word profit because it's a we look at that as a in a little different manner than just traditional accounting profit. We we take some balance sheet items and tie it to the to the operating income of, of a department or, or the dealership to get an idea of cash flow because cash is cash is king in this. When we're trying to achieve our mission, one of one of our driving principles is to deliver innovative products and constantly evaluate what will help our customers with their business. John alluded to our business intelligence division. One of the other products that, uh, in addition to the used truck uh, market intelligence work and some of the financial analytics, and I think they've surveyed, what, Mark, maybe 500,000 repair orders in the last year, something like that, and looking at, at best practices and throughput and so on. One of the other uh, items that, that the BI uh, division is, is, is doing is, is a product called Pulse. And uh, Pulse provides tactical data to a dealer. Um, we're starting with fixed ops and provides that tactical data to a dealer to support the daily routines, the standard operating procedures for the parts and service departments. 
And we've tried to build that to focus on industry metrics um, that drive gross profit because gross profit is key to the to the business. Um, you can expense yourself down only so far. And that view that Pulse gives, it's a streamlined view. Uh, you know, it's going to quickly highlight areas that are outliers and the parts department or the service department. And it's going to help the user, uh, the, the department manager, the dealer, the GM, whoever, identify areas to focus on and improve. And, um, and they can dig down into a granular level as well if they, if they want to see the, the specific outliers. Um, at the end of the day, Pulse is built around how we do our advisory work. Uh, what, what are those leading indicators, Mark, that you talk to? So I would encourage everybody to, uh, you know, to, to, to reach out to us and, and ask about Pulse. Uh, we're beta testing it right now. It's something that will go live first quarter of, of 2020. And uh, we're going to continue to roll it out. It lays right on top of your DMS platform, uh, starting with CDK users, moving them to, to uh, Proceed and, and uh, Carmack Fusion. I'd encourage our listeners, if, if you're interested, reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you about it. Guys, 125 years. Hopefully we don't have another 125 years left in us, but uh, um, hopefully we do have enough time left in us to offer some more wisdom. So we're out. Thanks for listening to Three Wise Truck Guys, the podcast from Key Advisors. We'd love to hear from you. Send us feedback, comments, and questions to info at keyadvisors.com.